So we're in Romans chapter 8 and continuing on where we left off last time. And uh, we're going to read from verse, uh, in fact I'm just going to read 1 to 11 um, just to get the context. We're going to look at verses 5 through to 11 uh, this afternoon. Paul starts this chapter with this glorious affirmation um, following on from everything he's said so far. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the, fl- on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised uh, Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit dwells in you. So we've been looking at Paul's letter to the Romans, um, and it's written about around about 57 uh, AD, uh, give or take a couple of years. And this is a church, just to remind you, this is a church that Paul had no personal contact with. He didn't plant the church in Rome. Uh, the likelihood is that uh, there were some Romans on the day of Pentecost, uh, Roman Jews on the day of Pentecost, and no doubt they took the gospel back amongst, there would be amongst the converts uh, on that day, and they would have taken the gospel back to Rome, and maybe a church was established that way. We don't know, we don't know the details. So Paul is writing to this church, and he's writing for a reason, um, and it's, it's not to give a theological treatise. Uh, of how salvation works primarily, but it's uh, it's actually for a very practical reason. He's he's travelling. He's got to go to Jerusalem first to deliver some gifts that he's got gathered and collected. But then when he does that, he's going to travel west, and he wants to get to Spain. So you see that in 15 verses 24, 25, um, he wants to get to Spain, and he's kind of sending this letter in advance to say, expect me to turn up. Uh, and hopefully, you know, I, I can be a blessing to you, and you can bless me and give me rest for a time before I'm, I carry on uh, westwards to Spain. Um, and so this, is, this letter is, is 
probably more like a, a missionary letter, you know, the kind of missionary letter you get uh, when the missionaries are telling you just how, how amazing everything is and how God is blessing them and how, how uh, uh, what the news, news updates are. Um, except this is quite an unusual missionary letter because it's full of theological content, isn't it? He's, he's actually explaining his gospel and the gospel he preaches. They don't really know him, so maybe he has to explain his, give his credentials by explaining what the gospel is and how he understands it to work. Um, so, so this is what Paul is explaining. And he's eager to preach this gospel. That's what he says in chapter 1, verse 15. I'm eager to preach this gospel to you um, so that he might be a blessing to them. Now, we've been uh, following Paul as he's expounded the gospel and its implications over the chapters. And where we are now is listening to Paul explain how, how this salvation that we've received by faith works out in the life of the believer. Um, how does it work? It's not just, as I said, and you may be bored with me saying this, but it's not just that we believe and therefore we get a ticket to heaven that we can put in our back pocket for the day we die. Actually, the salvation is continually being applied by the Holy Spirit. And uh, well, that's what we'll see in a minute. The Holy Spirit is at work in us, giving us new life and uh, applying to us. So we need to understand what's going on inside of us. Even though we still sin, we need to understand that God is still doing great work amongst us uh, in our own hearts. Um, so Christ is, so he's shown us how Christ has dealt with the, the penalty of sin. He's a propitiatory sacrifice. Um, but also how he has broken the power of sin in that it has no longer has authority over us. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we're actually genuinely free. We've been translated, uh, transferred, as it were, from that kingdom of darkness, the uh, ruling power of sin, to this ruling power of grace in Jesus Christ. And we really are free, even though we still have the vestiges of sinful, sinfulness in our bodies, in our souls. Uh, we are truly free in Christ. And we need to understand that. So what is it that... Uh, here's the question. What, what is it that, about a Christian that enables him or her to be fundamentally different from what he or she was before? What is the cause of this new life in the believer? Now let me just mention a couple of things that it's not. It is not because you have faith. Um, actually, that's simply an effect of a more fundamental thing that's happened to you. It is not that you now try harder as a Christian to be holy. Again, that's an effect but it's not the fundamental issue. It's not the thing that's brought about the fundamental change in the Christian life. And the fundamental cause of the change is, of course, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has brought the change, has given the new life. Um, now, we've already we mentioned the Holy Spirit last week. Uh, you may remember that uh, Paul says in verse 2, uh, of chapter 8, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. 
And then in verse 4, um, he's speaking about how sin is condemned in Christ's flesh. Uh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is now present in the life of the believer and now brings the changes that uh, we begin to see in the Christian life. And so what Paul is really doing here is he is describing to Christians what's actually happened to them and what they are now. What is the truth about their state now? And their, the experience of their lives now. Has, how do they walk in this way? How do they live their lives in this way? Through the Spirit. Um, and it's interesting, I think, that this is the way that the Apostle Paul speaks um, about, about Christians in this way. I've, I've constantly met Christians over the years, uh, one, even ones that call themselves evangelical Christians, who are uh, much more interested in what we should do. And it's not that there are not things to do as Christians, but there, there are, of course there are. But Paul's, Paul is always more concerned about what they've become in Christ. That fundamental change that's happened to them, from which flows everything else. And so Paul's eager to explain that. And... What Paul has been doing is he's been teaching Christians how to think about themselves now. Not to think in the old ways they used to think about themselves, but to think about themselves in a new way. And thinking about yourself in the right way in the light of Christ's work, saving work for us and God's grace, is the best way to prepare for doing anything in the Christian life. I've noticed, I've noted with you before, whereabouts is Paul's first command or instruction in the book of Romans? Just let you think about that for a second. <laughs> it's actually quite late. It doesn't come until chapter 6, verse 11, where he says, So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And the, the first command and instruction that he gives to the Romans is, how to think. How to think about yourselves. Um, and since then, I, you know, and, and he, he goes on and, and, and says, and gives a couple more things to say, uh, to, to, to instruct them. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Verse 12, uh, verse 13. Do not present your members as sin to right, instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Uh, and so on. Um, and, but that was the last time there was a, an actual instruction uh, from Paul. Uh, just how do you th- first think about yourself before you start doing, but then start doing once you've thought about it. Um, so, and, and when it comes to this, this, cha- this passage that we looked at, Paul is concerned um, for the readers to see, or the hearers, as this letter would be read out to the church, um, to, for them to see themse- that, themselves in a new way, that they're no longer in the flesh, but they're now in the spirit. And this is summarized in verse 9. You, who are, you however, are not 
in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And he sets up this contrast. He says, um, you are not that in the flesh, but you're now this in the Spirit. This is what you are if you have Christ, if you're a believer. So the question is, what does he mean by those two things, in the flesh or in the spirit? What does he mean? Um, and that's what we're going to look at now. So I've only got two headings this evening, living, living after the, in the flesh and then living in the spirit. And um, So first of all, then, living uh, after the flesh. Uh, so we start where Paul starts and think about what it means to be in the flesh. And the first thing I think we have to remind ourselves is, what does Paul mean by the flesh? Uh, if you have a new international version, I don't know if anybody does, but uh, sometimes people do. Uh, it uses that term sinful nature, but actually the word is flesh. It's um, sarks. It's uh, um, uh, sinful nature kind of introduces too many difficult ideas. But flesh keeps it simple because what he means is um, uh, he doesn't mean just our physical bodies, you know, and, and our muscle mass and this sort of thing. But what he means is uh, human nature, all of it, uh, body and soul, all parts of it, and all its faculties. But generally what Paul does, except when he's speaking about Christ, um, when he's speaking about us, it includes this sense that this flesh is infected with sin. So it's sinful flesh. Uh, so it's, it's the human nature in all its corruption. And so that's what he means by, uh, by flesh. And, uh, and, and flesh in that way is, is controlled and dominated by sin. Sin is not of the essence of flesh, but it's kind of a, an accretion that we can't get rid of. Um, if, if, if sin were the essence of flesh, then Christ becoming flesh would be a problem, a theological problem, wouldn't it? Um, but he has descended after David uh, according to the flesh, isn't he? Romans 1 4. Uh, so, so, flesh, um, so flesh doesn't necessitate sin, but in our condition, we have the sin. And when Paul says flesh, but regard to us, he means that sinful, corrupt flesh. Um, and that flesh, fleshly life, uh, takes us away from God, of course. And that's, that's what he's been laying out in chapter 1. You can see how uh, the corruption of human nature leads to separation from God. It leads to all kinds of things, to failure to give thanks, uh, failure to honor God, uh, descending into all kinds of sinful practices, uh, and so on. And, and Paul has already said that uh, this condition of being in the flesh determines how we walk. Uh, in the old life, it determines how determines how we walk in life. Um, it has this most practical outcome uh, when you're in the flesh. As it were, to be in the flesh can be seen in how you live and how you walk in life. Uh, it is uh, a way of life. So how does being in the flesh affect people? Now let me just mention three things. Uh, firstly, it affects what the mind thinks about. Verse 5. Uh, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Um, 
where you are living in the flesh determines what you think about. Uh, now, just a little minor digression here. If you think that when Paul means flesh, he means your physical components of your body, then of course Paul would be talking nonsense. Um, because then he'd be suggesting that being in the flesh would mean that you'd only think about your bodily needs and appetites, food, drink, sex, whatever. But people are more sophisticated than that, aren't they? They, uh, they do think abstract thoughts. Human beings do think about philosophy, maths, love, the nature of it, uh, the meaning of life and so on. Lots of big questions that people think about, um, even in the flesh. But all of it is according to the flesh. In other words, excluding God from the thought process. And so you exclude God's law from all of those big questions. You exclude the character of God from all of those big questions. And all you think about are human beings and the world that you inhabit. That's what, think back to when... Some of you might be able to remember when you weren't a Christian. Isn't that how you thought? You just thought about yourself and your relationships and people around you and politics and stuff. uh, You didn't think about God at all. It all seemed very abstract. And Paul says that in in chapter 1 that people that live their lives like that become futile in their thinking. They think, but not about the things that really matter. So that in the end, it's all rather futile and pointless. Think of all these philosophers that seem to have a living, thinking great thoughts, and yet nobody can understand a word they're saying. It's futile, pointless. So that's the first thing. It affects your, being in the flesh affects a person's mind and their thinking. The second way that, uh, that being in the flesh affects people is that they have no inclination to do what God wants. No inclination whatsoever. Uh, So verse 7. For the mind that is set in the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Um, There is, of course, a certain hostility to God in the world. And you do get people who are openly hostile to to God and the idea of God. not so much now, but uh, I remember the period when uh, the so-called new atheists were around, like Richard Dawkins and Sam Barrett and uh, Sam, uh, Sam Harris and uh, some others, uh, were openly advocating against or, and, and the, uh, but the dangers of religion. Uh, God is not good, said Christopher Hitchens in his book. God is not, is it God not great? I can't remember. <laughs> uh, but you know, he had this flurry of books against uh, religion generally and, and Christianity in particular. And there, are, there is a substantial number of people who are openly hostile uh, to, to God and what God wants. But the real mark of somebody who's hostile to God is, that, uh, is to reject the law of God. You won't submit to the law of God. They won't put themselves under its authority. And that's that's a condition of the heart to fight against God's rightful authority. And people can express it in the most benign ways. They can say, well, you know, I've got nothing against God. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not against God at all, if he exists. But they have no interest in being careful about what God wants. So they don't care about worship, they don't care about Sabbath day, uh, they don't care about honoring parents, and coveting, and so on. They go through, go through all, the, all the list. They are a law unto themselves. This is living in the flesh. But it actually gets worse than that, says Paul, because it's not just that they don't do it, it's that they can't do it. Indeed, they cannot. And that's a bit of a shocker, I think. Most people think they could if they just chose to, but actually Paul's saying you can't, they can't do it. They're so bound up in their sin that it's impossible for them to, to submit to God and do what God wants and to want to do what God wants. It's impossible. That's what being in the flesh is, is like. I mean, it's actually just an interesting statement about the freedom of the will for a person who is in the flesh. Uh, we, there are people who do want to argue that we have free will, and, and to a certain extent we do, under God. Uh, but when somebody is in the flesh, uh, there are certain things they cannot do. Because they're bound up in their sin. They don't realize it often. But they're lost. And it's impossible for them to do anything about it. It's not just that they would choose to do something about it, but they, they could choose to do it, but they don't do it. They can't even choose to do it. So, somebody who's in the flesh has no inclination to do what God wants. The third effect of this being in the flesh is is that you're dead already. You're dead already if you're in the flesh. See see verse 6. To set the mind on the flesh is death. Not that it leads to death, but that it is death. It is a condition to be dead even though you're living and breathing. This is the condition of somebody who's not a Christian, who's not discovered the grace of God. Jesus puts an alternative to this as he prays for his disciples in John chapter 17. And he says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so to have life is uh, to have the life that really matters is to be what we are created to be. To be in relationship uh, to the Father, to know him and to love him. And to have his, Jesus Christ, uh, his son, as your savior. But when you reject God, you reject the very source of life itself. And so in a sense, you're dead already. You're lost. It's like you're a dead man walking. You walk around, you're doing things, you try, try things out in life, you pursue things in life, and yet there's a deadness about your life. There's a spiritual deadness about your life. It's a life that's going nowhere, and one day your body will die, and then there will be only eternal death to come. Complete separation from the blessings of God in eternity. 
So if you're in the flesh, you're dead already and just waiting for that final judgment to fall. What a terrible state to be in. To be in the flesh. You think you're alive, but actually it's hopeless. Without Jesus Christ, you are a walking dead person. So that's what it means to be in the flesh. It's an utterly hopeless state. So what's the alternative? Well, that's our second point. Life in the Spirit, or living in the Spirit. That's the other side of of Paul's uh, discussion here. Uh, Because Paul says here of these Christians in verse verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. He's trusting. These are Christian believers. And they are not in the Spirit. Uh, Sorry, they're not in the flesh, they're in the Spirit. So the alternative to being in the flesh is to be in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And this is what he equates to uh, being a Christian believer, to be in the Spirit. Now remember that to be a Christian, he says in chapter 6, to be a Christian is to be united to Christ. United to him in his death, and like his, and united to him in the resurrection like his. You're united to Christ by faith. You're bonded to him. Uh, And so when you put your faith in Christ, you get Christ. You get him. But here he is saying something else. uh, In addition to that, he is saying, to be in the Spirit is to have the Holy Spirit dwell in you. And, you know, when you think about the Holy Spirit, there is, and how he comes and changes life, it's something like a, a divine invasion of your life. The Holy Spirit bursts into your life. Some of us will have had that experience. Where one day we weren't Christians, and suddenly light seems to dawn on us, and it's like a divine invasion into our lives, and we, be, we suddenly see things we never saw before. We see Christ, and we go to him. And it's that invasion of the Holy Spirit into our lives. And some, you know, somebody who experiences that becomes a real believer. The Holy Spirit comes in and you're in the Spirit. And he says, if you don't have that Spirit, you don't, you don't belong to Christ, actually. Or to put it the other way around, if you belong to Christ, you have the Spirit. It's not one or the other. It's not one then the other. It's... If you have Christ, you have the Spirit. So putting all of this together, the the moment you believe and trust in Christ is the very moment that the Spirit comes into you and dwells in you. And that's what becoming a Christian really is. It's a divine act of the Holy Spirit. Which takes a person from one place, being in the flesh, to another place, being in the Spirit. Into a new world, as it were. Earlier he's talked about it being in that place of grace. That standing in chapter 5 verse 1. You stand in, in the grace of God. You're under the grace of God. Not under the law, under grace now. And here he says, you're in the spirit. It's all aspects of the same thing. Same reality of his salvation. 
Now, notice what else he says about this. Um, I wonder if you notice, notice a little bit of a progression in his thinking. First of all, he talks about the Spirit of God. Then he talks about uh, the Spirit of Christ in verse 9. Uh, and the Holy Spirit, therefore, is Christ's Spirit. And then he says in verse 10, if Christ is in you, uh, and you see what, what he's saying here, is it, if you get the Spirit of God, you get the Spirit of Christ, and you get Christ. So Christ comes and dwells in you through his Spirit. And there's actually another step. If you look ahead to verse 11, because he begins to speak about the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. Now, who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, it was the Father. And so, this spirit is also the spirit of the Father who has come to dwell in believers. And so, here's the amazing thing about this saving work. When you become a Christian, what do you get? You get the Holy Spirit coming to dwell in you. You get Christ to come and dwell in you because the Spirit is Christ's Spirit. And you get the Father to come and dwell in you because he is the Spirit of the Father. You get the whole Trinity. That's how you get into communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Through the amazing work of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and it kind of makes sense of, of Jesus' comment in, in John 14, 23. And he says this, If anyone loves me, he will, keep, uh, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. How's, how is that fulfilled? You come, Father and Son come by the Spirit into the life of the believer. The whole Trinity taking up residence in your life and blessing you. And for you, nothing will ever be the same again. It's glorious, isn't it? Let me mention just a couple of things that will be different for you. Firstly, your mind changes when you have the indwelling Spirit, you set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And this is not just an occasional thought about something spiritual. It's actually a condition of the mind. Your, your whole orientation of your thinking is now spiritual and heavenly orientated. And so it becomes, it becomes normal and actually becomes your life and your passion to see everything through a spiritual lens when the Holy Spirit comes. It's like putting on a new, a new pair of glasses. Isn't that, isn't that what people describe becoming a Christian as? They, it's like they put on this new pair of spectacles that's clean and they can see things more clearly uh, in ways that they could never see before. And gloriously, um, they enter into this new, new life. So everything looks a bit different. Everything seems a bit different. You begin to want to live your life for his glory. Uh, your attitude to your work will change. You want to glorify God in your work. You will love your husband, your wife, your children in a brand new way. You will love the church of Jesus Christ in a new way. 
Because it is the creation of the same Holy Spirit that dwells in you. You love God's people. So that's one change. Your mind changes. Everything changes in your thinking. But then, secondly, the presence of the Holy Spirit sets about reversing that terrible state of death which he spoke of in chapter in verse 6. To set the mind on the flesh is death. Well, the Holy Spirit rever- begins to reverse that. With the Holy Spirit, there's now life and peace. And this will, will culminate in something that will be supremely practical for us. The resurrection of our bodies. And that's what uh, Paul is getting at in verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give your, uh, life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And notice how Paul explains this. He goes back to the resurrection of Jesus, uh, which is, for him is not just an isolated event in history that we currently, you know, today we will kind of scratch our heads over. But it stands as evidence of what's going to happen to us also. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, so too shall we be raised uh, from the dead to eternal life. And how do we know that? Because the Holy Spirit that empowered the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry and by the power of whom he was raised to life, is that same Holy Spirit that is in you, if you're a believer today. And if he raised Jesus, he's going to raise you into a new glorious body. So our bodies will be perfect, sinless, and we'll be without that inner war of resisting temptation and killing sin and so on. Now this idea of our resurrection can be a bit of a mystery to, to some Christians. I remember once um, one of my colleagues in ministry is now retired, Ian Hamilton, formerly of, formerly of Cambridge Presbyterian Church, told me about somebody in his church. And I can't remember if it was in Cambridge or his previous church before that in Scotland, in New Mills, in Ayrshire. But he told me about somebody in his church who didn't realize that Jesus had a body. <laughs> uh, it was, uh, and that, that's how some people think about Jesus now. They think about him as a disembodied spirit somewhere. And it comes as a bit of a shock that today, now, right now, in heaven, Jesus has a body. And it ascended to heaven. In Acts chapter 1. And it's a glorious body. And he's there in heaven. Uh, for us. Uh, so this is a glorious truth, isn't it? Um, and I remember another lady. Who became a member of this church. A very elderly lady. And she's since died and gone to glory now. But, um, and she had gone to church all her life. Uh, but she was not very well taught. And uh, one Sunday, uh, she was disturbed by one of my sermons. And maybe some people are always disturbed by my sermons. 
but she was disturbed about this uh, a, a particular thing I said, which is I said we would have bodies in eternity. We would have resurrection bodies in eternity. And she was utterly horrified. Because all she could think about was, I mean, for, for a start, she, she always thought we were disembodied spirits up in the clouds somewhere. She never really thought about it before. And then the second thought was, I'm a 90-year-old woman. Am I going to have this body forever? <laughs> and uh, it was a glorious thing to be able to say, no, you'll have a glorious, resurrected, energetic, beautiful, wonderful body that you will love. Because <laughs> our God is so good. Whatever you think about your body now is nothing compared to what you're going to get. <laughs> so don't, don't hang on to this body too much. See, all things are coming to a consummation where Jesus Christ will come again and we will be raised from the dead if we have died by that point. And we will have glorious new bodies. What a wonderful redemption we have in our Lord Jesus Christ and see what God is doing how he is fixing uh, our greatest problems and it begins with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives who brings new life into our, into our souls but in time we will have glorious new bodies a full salvation complete and finished consummated and all to the glory of God what a glorious gospel it is what a wonderful God we have for he does so much has done everything for those who deserve so little he is the God who would stoop so low to raise us up so high let's pray Father, thank you for your wonderful words. Thank you for the prospect of resurrection to come. Thank you that that work of resurrection has begun with the newness of life that is brought by the Holy Spirit. And we praise you that we have tasted of this salvation and that it will be brought to fullness and full consummation at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we say, come Lord Jesus, come. We look forward to it. And bless you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.